Chapter Twenty Nine of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine: A Fine Tip. There were many worse men in the world even then, and the number increases with population than the gallant Sir Cumberlay Hotchpot. The principal source of the evil in him was that he knew not wrong from right. If he could have seen the difference, he might have been tempted by the charms of virtue. But as that pure lady had never found her way into his visiting list, it would be unfair to blame him for neglecting her. He came of a good family in one sense, and a very bad family in another. For several generations the hotchpots had verified their names by making mixture of all moral doctrine, and the air of a county where the world is flat and oozy may have helped to bring high and low to one dead level. That speculation is beyond the mark, though as everything is material now it may justly be accepted in plea for him. What is more to the purpose and less of a problem is the plain truth that evil blood was in his veins and there had never been anything to purify it. In his early days the influence of a strong, clear-headed and resolute wife, lifting him into self-respect and sweetening his paltry bitterness, might have saved him from his vile contempt and made a decent man of him, and such a chance had once been his but he cast it by through his own foul conduct, and it never came again. The lady married a better man, who was able to lead her as well as be led, and the man she had escaped made a bitter grievance of his own miscarriage. Now he was one of that wretched lot. The elderly rakes, without faith in women, respect for themselves or trust in God, even the coarser advantages of life, the vigorous health, the good will of the world, the desire to rise, the power of wealth, all these had failed him, and he was left with nothing but a feverish thirst for excitement and a dreary desire to say spiteful things, which his meagre wit seldom gratified. For this he was hated by Downy Bullrag, who had despised him for aping the vices which are so much easier to youth. However, it was Downy's object now to ingratiate himself with this old party, and Downey had long acquired the art of quenching his sentiments in his object. So he took a cab that very night, when his mother's hysterics were drowned in cognac, and presented himself at Sir Cumberlay's house in a small square of South Kensington. He had not been encouraged to call here often, for the baronet, who generally misplaced his shame, was shy of the fact that he had let the better part of his house to a fashionable artist, while he occupied the smaller rooms himself. The visitor found him just returned from his club, and by no means in an amiable frame of mind, for the cards had been adverse, and he could ill afford to lose, and he did not scruple to show his annoyance at this late and unexpected call. But Downey drew an easy chair near the fire, gave a nick to the hotchpot terrier, who with sound instinct had made a dash at him, and spread his fat legs along the fender. Without saying a word till his host had done the grumbles, and he had his revenge in his own crafty way, for he gazed round the room, noting everything and lifting his yellow eyebrows now and then, or pursing up his big lips and stroking his moustache, as if he were conning how much, or rather how little, the pictures and furniture would fetch. Bring any auctioneers in your family? Sir Cumberlay's temper was never very good, and his appraisement of his chattels made it very bad indeed. His intention had been to have a quiet smoke and his nip or two of cordial by the fire, 
while he went through his tablets by the latest lights. He had thrown off his wig to cool his brain, and had no time to clap it on again. Frank and cheerful baldness is no disgrace to any man, and sometimes adds a crown of goodness to a pleasant face. But this gentleman had not that reward of gentle life, and his bulbous pate when naked was what ladies call horrid, his restless and suspicious eyes and sneering mouth with lines that looked as if nature had constructed channels for the drainage of foul words, and the sour crop of blotches on his welted cheeks were more than enough to countervail expansive brow and noble dome of curls, if there had been any. There were none, and even Downy Bullrag thought, What a bridegroom for a lovely girl! You are inclined to cut up rough, old boy! said Bullrag, after listening long to much that never should be listened to. "'Something disagreed with you. It must be so, as we get on in life. Well, tell me, when you are certain that you have done exploding. No hurry. Pleasure first. Business afterwards.' Sir Cumberlake carried on a little more with his condemnation of all mankind, just to show that he was not at all impressed with this aspect of the younger man. Then his temper prevailed, as the other kept quiet, and he said, "'How with your business, if there is any? "'I don't suppose it matters much to you. "'You are rolling in money after going down to your audit and all that sort of thing. "'You might like to invest a cool five hundred in a loan to me at five per cent. "'Do it, and earn my everlasting gratitude. "'You have something good to tell me or to put me up to. "'Upon my soul, Bullrag, I shall be glad to know it.' I have three bills fallen due tomorrow. I am on my last legs, and that makes me so grumpish. You have been uncommonly grumpish, Potts, and I am not at all sure that I shall tell you anything. I like to do a kindness to a friend, but you hardly seem to be quite that just now. My dear fellow, you never go by words. You have seen too much of the world for that. The real friend is the man who shows you his rough side. I do that to you, Downey, because I like you. "'Then you can't have much left for your enemies, my friend. "'But my rule is to take things as I find them, "'and the same is the golden rule, according to the law and prophets. "'I shall render good for evil, Potts. "'I shall tell you of a nice little windfall for you, "'if you have the pluck to keep up with luck. "'Downy, I'm up for anything. "'All has been against me for the last ten days, "'and I should like to have my revenge of it. "'It would take a big fence to pound me.' "'There's a big pot of money on the other side,' said Downey, counting slowly on his fingers. Eighteen and sixteen make thirty-four, and twelve makes forty-six, and Chilean eight thousand four hundred. With the market down, should be worth another twelve when they go up. I'll put it at present quotations, and you have between fifty-four and fifty-five thousand pounds, payable on the nail, and no trustees.' It would come in pretty well to start with, Potts, after paying the fellows that know no better. And you might lend me the odd four thousand upon good security. I will give you eight per cent, old fellow, and pay you like a church. What is it, Downey, or are you trying hocus? Nothing of that sort ever comes my way now. I have been on the wrong horse ever since last good word. And now again at Lincoln. Those cursed tips have tipped me over. It has nothing to do with turf or tips. What do you think of our little kitty coming into sixty thousand pounds? For it's worth every penny of that, they say, and nobody to look after it. 
but the lucky cove that marries her. Sweet Kitty, my sweet Kitty Fairthorn, I adore her for her own sake without a crooked sixpence. But it sounds too good to be true, my boy. Take a suck and tell us all about it. The beauty of it is that she doesn't know a word of it. Bullrag began to unfold his roll of fiction very recklessly, which gave it the crackle and flash of truth. And if we can keep her in the dark for another ten days or fortnight, why, a bit of pluck and gumption, and there the job is done. You know that my excellent mother considers it one of her strictest duties to open all the letters that come to the house for the younger feminine branches. She keeps the key of the letter box, and no one else is allowed to go near it. When I first came back, she began to open mine, but I stopped that. Quick sticks, I can tell you. She's a strong party, and no mistake. Hope she won't want to come and cock over my crib when I'm spliced at the heavenly kitty. I should get the wrong side of the sixty thousand pounds. Well, this morning there came a little billet for our kitty, sealed and got up, and looking no end confidential. The ma wasn't going to stand that, of course, and set up her hackles that anyone should try it. She took it to her own room and found it so important that it was not right to let the owner know a word about it, at least until the subject had been well considered. But she called me into counsel, and my advice was to keep it dark and make the most of it, and here is all there is of it. It seems that the old scientific bloke had a sister in the wilds of Northumberland, to whom he gave fearful offense years ago, by blowing her cat up or something of that sort, and she vowed he should never have sixpence of hers. But being better off for cash than kindred, which is not the usual state of things, she has left all her belongings to his daughter, straight away in the lump, with nothing to pay but duty. Her father will be her trustee by law, I suppose, until she is of age or marries. But if she marries, without having it settled, which her father, of course, would insist upon, why, there you are, the happy man is master of the money, though she may go in for a post-nuptial, or whatever they call it, kind of settlement. Downy, my boy, it sounds too good to be true, said Sir Cumberlay, looking at him doubtfully, but the young man's great bulky face and round forehead were as tranquil as an orange. Who are the lawyers? It came, of course, from the old lady's man of law. Was it a London or a country firm? I don't want to be too inquisitive, you know, but in a matter of this sort, the less you know the better, so long as you are convinced. You are eager to marry the girl without a penny, and what motive can I have for deceiving you? In fact, I think I have been a fool to tell you. We could let her get the money, and what chance would you have then? Plenty of young swells with rhino of their own would be after such a pretty girl with sixty thousand pounds. "'and I will tell you two things since you seem to doubt me. "'In the first place, I shall insist upon ten thou "'advanced upon my note of hand at five per cent. "'And again for your comfort, my mother, since she heard of it, "'won't hear another word of you, beloved Potts, "'unless I can bring her round to it. "'She would naturally prefer a young, soft fellow "'with a fine place of his own, where she can go and govern, "'when she wants a little change as she governs everywhere.' "'So that will be all you get, old chap, by doubting yours truly. "'Good night, my boy. I'm sorry that I ever told you.' "'Don't be so hot, my friend. I never doubted you. "'All that I doubted was my own good luck. "'And upon my soul, Downey, 
If you had had such luck as I have, you would never place any more faith in it. Here, my dear fellow, have a Don Pendolato. There's not such another weed to be got in London. And here's a rare drop of old brandy, such as perhaps you never tasted. It's as old as the hills and as soft as oil. You must never put a drop of water with it. It stands me in two hundred and forty shillings a dozen, and I have never let any one see it but myself. What do you think of that now? Roll it on your tongue. The best liquor you ever knows is not a patch upon it. You're a good judge. Give me your opinion. I never tasted anything like it, Potts. Where the devil do you get it from? I'll put you up to that some day. But now let us have a little quiet chat. You need not be afraid of it. Have another glass. You see, I always take it in a very thin dock glass, made on the purpose for it. If it had not been for that, I should have gone to the dogs long ago with all my troubles. However, let us hope for an end of them soon. Fifty thou would set me straight, and I could get back the old place, and give up fast life, and turn quiet country squire. It is time for me to get out of all this racket, and stick to one or two solid friends like you. Now, tell me, old chap, exactly what am I to do? I'll give you any undertaking you think fit, only, of course, we must keep it dark. Ah, do not be in any over-hurry. Donovan Bullrag breathed rings of blue serenity from the gray-edged auricula of his fine cigar, and then said slowly, I remember some little box you used to have, about two miles beyond Hounslow. Yes, and I've got it still, because nobody would have it. They wanted to turn it into a poultry breeding place when the craze was on, but they could not pay deposit. At any rate, they didn't, and I have it still on hand. All right, have it aired. It will be very pretty now that the broom and all that is coming on again. In another week or so, the nightingales will be about. Could you have a snugger place on earth to pass your honeymoon in? Twig, said Sir Cumberley. Twig's the word with a little quiet prodding and a special license. But won't she cut up rough, my boy? We must not have abduction. It has been done to my family, but the times were better then. Kitty is not the one to cut up rough. My mother has drilled her a lot too well for that, and if I come with her and you are not seen till the last, there can be no talk about abduction. All the little particulars must be left to me. You can let me your crib if it eases you down, and produce the agreement if there is any row. But there won't be any row. You know the rule with women. Smooth over everything when the job is done. I should like to think it over a little, Downey. I'm not like a boy who has had the world on his side when he does a rash thing in his passion. The world has been very hard on me, God knows and I'm rather old to give it another slap in the face. Why shouldn't I marry the charming Kitty with her mother's consent and all done in proper trim? Then we could go down to my old house and have bonfires and bells and roast an ox and all that, and she could have a settlement. Why not? My lawyers could do it so as to leave me the tin. Try it on that way if you like. How can it matter to me, beloved Potts? There are two little stodges for you to get over. Would Kitty ever look at you if she knew she had this money? And my mother will not hear of you since she saw that letter. 
That devil of a woman, cried the other rather rudely, forgetting that her son received the statement of the fact. She has always had her own way, and she always will. Thank God that she never married me. Perhaps she would have done it if she had seen me soon enough. If she has turned against me, it is all up without some such lay as yours, my boy. Not a dog can tuck his ear up without her knowing why. You could never get your sister down there without her knowing it. She is not my sister, said Downey very hotly. Or do you think I would let her marry such a man as you? But the devil of a woman, as you politely call her, goes down to my grandfather in Wales next week and takes my two sisters with her. Oh, then the coast will be clear, my dear boy. That makes all the difference. You might have told me that half an hour ago. I see the way of it now, clear enough. The main point will be to keep the country lawyers quiet. Unless they get an answer to their letter pretty sharp, they'll be sending up a junior partner or their London agent for fear of some other lawyer's finger in the pie. That would upset your pot. How are you to help it? Nothing easier, for a few days at any rate. And that is why the job must be tackled pretty smart. We shall send an acknowledgment in Kitty's name tomorrow, saying that she wishes to consult her father's lawyers, name of the firm, of course, omitted, from whom Messrs. so-and-so will hear very shortly, and that will keep him quiet for a bit. Those fellows make a point of never hurrying one another. Capital. I know what they are too well. By the by, did you tell me the name of the gang in Northumberland? I might make a note of it, though I must not let them guess that I heard of them, of course. You would cut your own throat if you did, Potts. I can tell you if you like, and get the letter perhaps to show you. But you had better be able to swear if there should be any rumpus that you had never so much as heard of them, and then, if you were pressed, you might admit that you had heard some vague rumor but paid no attention to it, as it came from a source you had very little faith in. Certainly I could swear that without much harm. Don't show me the letter. I don't want to see it. Have another drop of this wonderful stuff. It wouldn't hurt a child. It's as soft as milk. No, not a drop. I'm too late as it is. You had better keep away from our place for the present. It would not be so well for you to receive the sack, you see, before the great stroke comes off next week, and the mother might be apt to administer it in her hasty way, you know. Send a line to say you've got a cold or something, and then run down to the cottage and begin at once to get it into spick and span, and I shall come to you every night and report progress. Sixty thousand is a good stake to run for. "'When is it to be, Downey? When is it to be? "'My nerves are not what they used to be, "'and I shall not get a wink till the race is pulled off.' "'Oh, yes, you will, if you go in for hard work. "'How can I tell the day till I have seen the mother off? "'The sooner the better when she has made tracks. "'There's an old buffer coming to see the house "'and keep our kitty in order. "'But I can do what I like with her. "'She smashed taters after the real thing.' Be of good cheer, Potts. I should say next Wednesday or Thursday would see you a reformed and happy character. Ta-ta, and remember me in your prayers. I say, Downey, just one little thing, said Sir Cumberlay, recalling him with some hesitation. You must not be offended, old fellow, but I should be so much obliged 
if you would drop your habit of calling me Potts so frequently. It sounds so personal, although, of course, it has no application to me as yet. Why, you might even do it before your sister, and then it would be so, so unromantic. You see what I mean? No offense, you know. I tell you, I won't have her called my sister. She is no sister of mine, nor in any way connected. If you call her my sister any more, I shall look upon it as an insult. A very great compliment, I should say, Sir Cumberlay pondered when his visitor was gone. What the deuce makes him get in such a wax about it? A fellow with such a batter-pudding face might be proud to call such a girl his sister. Oh, I see why it is. What a thick I must be. If she were his sister, he would be ashamed to be a party to this little plant. I don't like the look of it, and that's all about it. But such a poor devil must not stick at trifles. Sixty thousand pounds would set me on my legs again and it is not to be had by lying down and rolling, and the sweetest girl in London, too, without any cheek or high faulting, I can soon break her into any pace I choose. I am not a bad fellow, only so unlucky. If this comes off, I'll go to church every Sunday, but I'll take uncommon good care all the same that Master Johnny Dory does not collar too much of the rhino. I hate that young fellow, He's just like a yellow slug crawling on a mop. End of chapter 29